This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to the Trailblazers Talks, a series of conversations with Australia's greatest living explorers presented by Australian Geographic, recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. My name is Kim McKay and I am the Director and CEO of the Australian Museum and it is just my great pleasure not just to welcome you here tonight but to let you know that you're in for quite an experience. I know you've been having a good time I hope looking at the exhibition and uh, at the museum and enjoying the wonderful hospitality. Of course we're here tonight because of Australian Geographic and their incredible sponsorship. So I just want to start tonight by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're gathered, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to elders past and present. And it's very important we do that at the Australian Museum, of course, as we are the custodians of one of the most significant Indigenous collections in the nation. I was so excited when we decided to do this exhibition and to be able to involve someone I've known for a long time, Howard Whalen. His lifelong passion for adventure, writing and filmmaking has taken him to just about all the planet's wildest places. One of the first to walk the 4,000 kilometre Pacific Crest Trail from Canada to Mexico, that was before Donald Trump wanted to put the wall up, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. He went on to cross the Kokoda Track in Papua New Guinea, spend three months in remote Russia writing for Outside Magazine, the United States, one of their premier adventure magazines, and was cameraman on the first Australian ascent of Everest. Howard has led many expeditions, especially in polar regions, including Antarctica, uh, and very most recently for the Academy Award-winning film Happy Feet, and also for Aurora Expeditions. In fact, any time in the last few years I've tried to find Howard, he's always in Antarctica. He, of course, was founding editor of Australian Geographic magazine and is a fellow of the Explorers Club. Greg Mortimer, of course, contracted a terrible bronchial disease at age six, a lung infection causing a buildup of fluid. However, this did not stop him becoming inspired by climbers he saw on the Three Sisters in the Blue Mountains. He went on to become the first Australian to reach the summits of Mount Everest, K2, Annapurna 2 and Chongta in the Himalaya, all without supplementary oxygen. During his amazing adventures, he also set up the very well-regarded Aurora expeditions for adventurous tourists wanting to explore Antarctica and he pioneered those ship-based adventures. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I am so honoured to welcome both Howard Whalen and Greg Mortimer in conversation. Welcome. All right. <laughs> welcome, everyone. We have a uh, fantastic venue tonight. This feels very much like someone's lounge room, and we're going to treat it as such. Um, this is a wonderful opportunity for, uh, for me because I've got some questions for Greg that I've been wanting to ask for many, many years. We, uh, we got to know each other probably in the party that after Annapurna, 
And then we got to know each other a lot better on Everest and then subsequently just in life since then. But um, okay, <clears throat> this is some footage that Greg shot on the summit of K2. Uh, he climbed <clears throat> with a small team, uh, two Americans, one stayed behind. One American came up and two Australians, Greg Child and, uh, and Greg Mortimer. They made the first Australian ascent of K2. They went via the North Ridge, which is a very, very difficult route, and were the first people to climb it without oxygen. So you're on the summit. What happened next? A uh, curious thing about getting on the top of really big mountains is that as soon as you get there, this trigger flicks immediately about getting down again. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's not triumphalist in any way. It's a no shit moment that you've got to <laughs> get down again. And uh, that was a very good case in point. And, um, the, what I do remember in setting up for, to shoot Greg Child and do that was putting my ice axe into the snow and it went through into thin air and it was a cornice we were sitting on going down into Pakistan. So we <laughs> backed off a little bit and did that and I, I can't remember how long we stayed there, 20 minutes or so, and then started down and, um, and it, it was towards the end of the day. And so by the time you got down, you, you were, <coughs> when you got down to nearly your high camp, it was, it was dark by then, would you say? Yeah, it was well dark by yeah. Okay, and in the <coughs> introduction to your, uh, there's a book I'll refer to, it's called First Ascent, it's written by Lincoln Hall. And he had commented, um, uh, Greg Child had actually written the uh, foreword to the book, and he had commented about a situation where he got within about 100 meters of the tent and he was done in, he, he was gone. And then you encouraged him. Well, I laughed at him actually. And <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Um, it was a fairly grim and serious moment in principle. And it was, it was dark and it was steep and and we didn't know where we were really, apart from down in the valley about 10,000 feet below, we could see this little red dot. And it was, um, my wife Margaret had lit, had lit a bonfire down in the, on the glacier. <laughs> and um, we just saw this little red dot, which connected us to the rest of the world. <laughs> and, um, and Greg Child is an extraordinary, extraordinary mountaineer, mm. and he was stuffed. Yeah. And uh, well, I'd like to, I'd like to uh, investigate where that wicked laughter came from, and why. So we're just going to go back. If you guys bear with me, and come back to. See. I, I laughed at him because it was so ridiculous. The whole situation. <laughs> Not out of malice, I don't think. It was more, <laughs> I, it was just such a silly situation. Okay. I think this might, uh, this might go a little ways to uh, start explaining a few things. This is, uh, Greg was born in 1953. 
uh, here in Sydney. And uh, for the first five years or so of his life, he was living above a florist shop near Bondi Junction, which his mother ran. That's Greg. <laughs> that sort of says it all right there in that one, in that one shot. <laughs> um, just, uh, I'll just take a, a minute because uh, Kim referred to, uh, to the fact that, uh, that Greg did have to overcome a, a childhood uh, challenge, you might say. Um, when he was five, he contracted measles, and because of that, he then uh, got something else called bronchiectasis. And this is a, a disease that basically fills your lungs with mucus. And uh, to deal with it, uh, Greg's mom would take him into the Prince Alfred uh, Hospital, I think it was once a week? Yeah. Yeah, once a week, and put him down on the operating table and they would then force two tubes down through his throat into his, uh, into his lungs. Uh, and then they would pump uh, air and water into his lungs through one tube and then that would wash out his lungs and then this sort of frothy sort of mix would come out on the other tube. They had, to, uh, they had to time it just right, because if they pumped too much water, too much fluid in, then Greg would drown. And uh, I th the procedure took about 20 minutes. And uh, throughout the procedure, Greg had to stay completely still. If he struggled in any way, he could do permanent damage to his lungs. And it was only through washing out this, the mucus away from his lungs that they were able to absorb oxygen. Uh, and Lincoln later wrote about this in his book. And Lincoln wrote, he said, the struggle remained a mental battle between the part of his, Greg's, uh, mind that screamed, I can't breathe, and the part of his mind that told him calmly, I can manage this breath. And if I just stay calm, I can manage the next. This one breath at a time approach transformed the 20 minute treatment into a timeless exercise of disciplining his mind Greg was learning the kind of mental uh, control needed to deal with life-threatening situations, an amazing skill to, to develop during the formative years of 6 to 11. Okay, it went on for that long. So my question is, when you were climbing without oxygen, high on K2 or on Everest, did you ever consciously think back to those treatments, to think back to when you were a child? No, I didn't. I washed that away yeah. <laughs> um, and sort of hidden it away, I suppose. I, I wasn't. It was just the way it, things were when I was a kid, and I hadn't really um, thought of it in those terms until you read it out to me the other day. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, but in, on reflection, that's a, you know, that's a chapter gone by um, as a child. I, I suppose on reflection I was quite lucky to be able to have that sort of thing as a child to be a metre of what breathing was about. <laughs> and do you, think that, um, do you think that childhood challenges like this, be they physical or emotional, um, do they play a role in developing the mindset of an adventurer or an explorer? Uh, I, uh, you know, I've heard it said that uh, that kids that do it tough when they're that men and women who do it tough when they're kids get this um, 
you know, tough streak in them. Uh, and I think there's a, a bit of truth in that. Um, I, I don't think of it as conscious thought. Um, and yeah, you know, it's probably stood me in good stead. <laughs> well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about going into the next phase, which is um, um, how did you start climbing? Climbing defines oh, you. Like this. Yes. This is going down the banisters at the Three Sisters um, with my friend from school, Warwick Dyson, and my mother and sister, and a couple of other people who I can't remember. And um, I think I'm incredibly lucky because my mum and dad would let me, at the age of 12 or so, take a train up to the Blue Mountains and disappear for the weekend and come back on Sunday night to go to school on Monday. And uh, I don't think they knew what was going on. And in, in, in reflection, in, um, you know, and it was an extraordinary act of love for them to just let me go. Uh, and that's often talked about in, you know, in recent years about mm. the, the cotton wooling of children yeah. um, in, in our large cities. Um, I was a great Gladesville kid who went rock climbing from 13. <laughs> And tell me a little bit about some of the early climbs that you did. We've got a great shot of you. In hindsight, I was obsessive. Um, still managed to go to school, and, and but just wanted to go climbing all the time. Mm -hmm. And I learned that from the Boy Scouts, mm -hmm. going um, and being taught to rock climb in the Boy Scouts. Um, as a kid, and and that was when I saw what climbing was like. Um, saw guys climbing on the Three Sisters. I just liked doing that. And you had some, you had some key people who took you under their wing and took you out. And yeah. Taught you a little yeah. bit about the rules and yeah. how it worked. Keith Bell, Bruce Postel, mm -hmm. um, and and. Throughout the years, and, and recent versions of those as well, Mike McDowell in recent years, but um, yeah, teaching me to go climbing. Friends I went to university with who took me to New Zealand um, mm -hmm. to learn the basic skills of mountaineering. And they were just fortuitous events where friends came along who um, suffered a fool. <laughs> okay, you went, you climbed up in the Blue Mountains, you then expanded your range, started to put up. First ascents up in the Warrumbungle Mountains in the early days of Bungonia Gorge, uh, Mount Buffalo, yeah. a few other spots. Yeah. Um, but you then went over to New Zealand. You were very keen on rock climbing. And you went to the Darrens, and something happened there. But, but before we get into that, let just maybe very quickly define the difference between just rock climbing and mountaineering. Um, there's a, there's a demand of technical skill in rock climbing. Um, it's a, a concentrated physical and mental effort, uh, which is a very particular connection of, of a physical effort and mind, of course, in the vertical. Um, <clears throat> but you're very much focused on the, the immediate. You know, your immediate body, mm -hmm. your feet and your hands and the few feet around you. But mountaineering is a whole world that opens up. And, and that's what I found, you know, the first time going to New Zealand. 
This is a this is a shot up near Ball Pass. Yeah. So Greg was over rock climbing in the Darrens, and the weather was crap. And you went to Queenstown, ran into an old mate who said, "Let's go." Let's go to Mount Cook. Yeah. Yeah. This is a guy, um, a guy who I befriended at university, Steve Anderson, and I had gone to New Zealand just to go rock climbing, fairly blinkered, sat for six weeks in the Darrens in the rain and didn't do one climb, got very pissed off. Met Steve in the Wanaka supermarket and he said, well, we go climbing, eh? And, and I didn't know anything about it and he took me up into this world of glaciers and, and the magnificence of the South Island of, um, of New Zealand. And we simply went up over a pass we just walked up a bit of a glacier and a bit of a snow field and it was a day and a half and it was really straightforward. Mm. But there's an entire universe there in that place of natural beauty and avalanches and crevasses and, and things to learn. Yeah. And uh, that, that's what opened up for me there. And you went back the following year to climb mountains so yeah. you're, you're, you had made the adjustment. But on that, um, on that trip, you were going up to a place called Harper's Saddle, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. And you had, it wasn't your first major accident, but it was certainly something that was quite a severe accident. Is that when you had the collapse of the cornice? Yes, yes. We'd climbed on the south face of Hick, Mount Hicks. For, so for those of you who know the valleys of Mount Cook, it's the, uh, on the western side of, of Mount Cook, a fantastic valley system which is, with a big steep rock wall at the end of it and demanding steep rock and ice climbing. We're actually coming down from that. So, so tired, knackered, and at the end of an 18 hour day. And going down the snow fields which are the skirt at the base of Mount Hicks. But it's quite steep and it's crevassed. And I didn't have many skills in my kit bag at that stage. And it, the weather was filthy, so we had um, nylons on, you know, slick. Mm. We had the slicks on. And, uh, and my crampon, one of my crampons got balled up with snow and I didn't really know how to deal with that at that stage. I hadn't learnt that one. Mm. And, uh, and I fell off mm -hmm. and, and took off l like a condom, you know, down, all dressed in rubber mm -hmm. and down the hill <laughs> and, um, excuse me, and, <laughs> and, and I, I can remember it, you know, I can remember it quite distinctly because uh, I tried to stop and I tried to remember about the things that the guys had told me about using your ice axe to stop yourself. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't done that before. Mm -hmm. And what you do is you roll onto your belly and you stick your ice axe into the snow and you use it as an anchor. And your body weight supposedly digs into the snow or ice and slows you down, self-arresting. So I wasn't very good at it and went a long way. And I don't know from whence it came, but I got onto the... I kind of remembered, I, I don't know, that there, was, there were big crevasses at the base of the steep slope. And I somehow got on to my back again, this is all completely intuitive, and got my 
crampons on the lip of the upper side of this big crevasse and projected myself on a forward roll across that down to the downside and, and took off again, kept going. And, um, you know, it was a perfect, it was a 10. It was <laughs> <laughs> unbeknownst to myself. And, and, and then it just rolls out at the bottom. Um, that, that was sobering because that's what those environments do. They come at you suddenly, mm -hmm. you know, and so. Well, that, um, most people would have called it quits after that, but you didn't. Uh, you came back to Australia, you continued your studies. Uh, you were getting a degree in geology at Macquarie University. Uh, you were in a steady relationship. Uh, but then, like many Australians, you went overseas. Um, but you went with a purpose. Now, I'm not going to, we're, we're, we've just got to watch time a little bit, but I'm just going to show you a couple of slides um, when Greg, Greg's gap year, no. Yeah. <laughs> when, Greg, when Greg went overseas, and Greg can just say a few words about each. Oh, this each. is climbing steep limestone in, the, in Britain, which is famous, of course, for those of you who know it, wonderful stuff. Um, Stony Middleton. Oh, this is on uh, Mont Blanc. There's a, an extraordinary climb on the Italian side of Mont Blanc called the Central Pillar of Frenna. It was famous because the Italian mountaineer Walter Bonatti had um, been the, f the founding father of that. And at that stage, um, it was considered the hardest route in the Alps. And uh, yeah, that's on that. Oh, and we went to Yosemite Valley. Um, and this is a time where there was an explosion in standards in rock climbing. And this is on the nose of El Capitan. Um, what we did, what at the time was a ridiculously fast timing. We did it in two days. Right, right. Um, and so bivied once on the way. And, and now there are young guys doing it in a couple of hours <laughs> without rope. Uh, and this is um, in Peru, uh, in the Cordillera Blanca, uh, Cordillera Waiwash, I should say. Um, and that's Noel and Mary Sissons with me on a uh, bivouac we had climbing uh, the magnificent mountain of Yurupaha. Um, for those of you who know the, the Peruvian Alps at all, they're extraordinary, pointy, volatile, uh, scary mountains with weird snow conditions and Yurupaha uh, is, I think it's the second highest mountain in Peru. And, uh, and you had, it was on this trip, you had your second uh, close encounter, I believe. Is this, the, this is one where the... Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to just make this all about the disasters. The <laughs> there will be some successes coming up. <laughs> I, I, I had a very big fall in, in Peru. Um, with Noel uh, on the left-hand side there, who's a, who's a wonderful, wonderful, bright, sparky, Kiwi climber in the best mode, um, and a very good friend. And he and I uh, climbed a mountain called Chakarahu, and it's steep and demanding, and I mentioned this weird snow conditions that the mountains of Peru have, which we at that stage didn't really fully understand. But it's like um, fairy floss snow um, in Peru. It's full of air. 
and no consistency to it. And that's why you see magnificent images of huge mushrooms of snow sitting on top of the mountains of, of Peru, of the Andes. Uh, weird atmospherics of wind and snow and warmth. Anyway, uh, I climbed up to the top of Chakarahu from a little snow hole, trailing a rope, Noel Belaine, and triumphantly got onto the top of Chakarahu. And I'd gone out from <coughs> 50 metres up from Noel. And a few metres out from him had put one small ice screw into the ice. So it's about this long. You screw it into the ice, clip your rope into that. And then after that, it was just air and snow, nothing to, to, to be, make you safe, make you safe. <coughs> and while I just got onto the top of Chakarahu, and the whole thing collapsed. The, the top fell off. The top of the mountain fell off. <laughs> and so I go down with it, screaming down through the air. And I fell, I fell about 80 metres. Um, and I don't remember too much about that. But I do remember kind of remember going through the air mm. and, and thinking that, the only reasonable outcome was my own demise. Mm. And um, then uh, the rope stopped. And somehow that ice screw had helped. Mm. And Noel had been ripped off his position and ripped up into the air. And his anchors had held. And I just remember looking down the rock gullies of Chakarahu, swinging in the air. Um, a bit broken, huh? Oh. Okay. The... It's silly. It is a silly thing. <laughs> when, you, when you do it like that, you say it like that. Okay, let's... Um, you came back, and just to, uh, just to relax when you were back in Australia, maybe go out into the South Seas, and uh, climb Ball's Pyramid. Now, Ball's Pyramid is, is probably one of the, the great um, geological features on the planet. It's the largest sea stack in the world. It's about 27 kilometers south of, of Lord Howe Island. Uh, and it's, it's stunning. It's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful piece of volcanic plug, really. Um, so the idea was it had been climbed before, and Greg and Keith, Keith Bell. Bell. We're going to start here, I believe. Yeah. Come up, up over the top, and do the first skyline traverse. Yeah. Of it, yeah. all the way down here, the north. So that's the southwest northeast ridge. Um, want to go into a lot of details, except for things didn't go quite according to plan. <laughs> this is bad, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Sorry. It's shaping up yeah, unexpectedly. Um, we got caught in a cyclone. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the, you may laugh, <laughs> and, and that was unwitting. And uh, we, on the way down, yeah. pretty much on the top, the cyclone started. Yeah. And it's about this time of year. It's when you know, like Winston coming in. It's one of those yeah. hitting Lord Howe Island. And 
And so we got down in the, as the encroaching cyclone came and got to a point a couple of hundred feet above the water uh, into a little hole, into a cave, and then we waited there, for, you know, for five days, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because the cyclone passed quite quickly, mm. but the, the, seas were, the seas were huge. But I very distinctly remember sitting in that cave with Keith and in the, in the guts of the cyclone, a vortex appearing off the end of um, the pyramid, off the end of the, of the North Ridge, just in front of us. It's like we were sitting in a cinema watching this water spout come as the wind came round both sides of the pyramid. And we, like I said, we're about 200 feet above the water and this vortex was many, many hundreds of feet above us from the water up. And the birds on the pyramid were being drawn, sucked into this vortex. So it was a mass of water and wind and birds, just <laughs> like a maelstrom in oh. front of us, probably like the, uh, to the back of the theatre away from us. Um, yeah. That was the uh, thing. Okay, um, in the, okay, so in, this is now the late 70s, and in 1979, you were, you've been doing a lot of geological work here in Australia and in New Zealand. And in 1979, you were invited to go south with the New Zealand Antarctic Program to go and do as, uh, both as a field training officer and a geologist. Uh, you spent the summer working on a Scott base. And I just want to say a few words about your first encounter with uh, Antarctica. Uh, um, I, I know that a number of you have been in Antarctica from conversations before this evening. Um, for me, going to Antarctica for the first time was flying in a big um, US Antarctic program uh, aircraft from Christchurch, 10-hour flight to Scott base. And you land on the glacier, on the Ross Ice Shelf next to Mount Erebus, basically, underneath Mount Erebus. And the Ross Ice Shelf stretches out there, flat as the floor, the size of New South Wales, disappearing to the South Pole. And I really clearly remember getting out of the plane and you're in the somewhat the warmth of the aircraft and there's the Royal Society Range, which is one of the great mountain ranges of the world. And, and gasping and taking a big lung full of deep freeze and, uh, and regretting it <laughs> and, to, and to, uh, extraordinary impact that, that you know the first side of Antarctica is, is nothing like it. So we're going to come back to Antarctica again but um, after that uh, after that work uh, you came back and in the early 80s uh, you were invited on an expedition to go to the Himalaya to climb Annapurna 2. So was climbing in the Himalaya sort of a long-held dream of yours? Uh, it, no, it, it just kind of came that way. Yeah. You know, it was a logical progression and the opportunity came. You know, and that's often been the case for me. It's just things pop up. <laughs> and, uh, and this chance to go to Annapurna 2 with, with Tim and Lincoln and, and Andy popped up. Yeah. So you, uh, you went across to Nepal for the first time. And what was that like? Oh, um, you know, Kathmandu then in the early 80s was, well, somewhat different to what it is today. 
um, that stage when you arrive at the airport in Kathmandu, the customs officer was, was cross-legged on the desk, as, uh, sitting on top of the desk uh, when you arrive and you think, okay, well, this is different. <laughs> and, uh, and then the, and the cows were still allowed in around the airport and uh, it's just a throng of that colour and heat and smells and exotica that is Nepal and the Himalaya and, and Asia. And you also, which is quite different from, say, climbing in New Zealand, was you got to interact with the local culture. You got to meet the Sherpa sure. people or the Nuwaris. For the, the first time, to, yeah. meet, uh, to meet those guys, yeah, to meet some of the, the mountains of the, the people of the Himalaya. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you were there, uh, you were attempting a new route on Annapurna too? Yeah. It was. Hi, this, you know, this is um, the south face of Annapurna II. Um, that ridge that goes right up the middle, the guts of it, um, that beautiful bee line is what we wanted to climb. Uh, and it hadn't been climbed before. Those of you who know Pokhara, Kathmandu and, and the Himalaya, it's a fantastic looking thing that dominates the drive from, from Kathmandu to Pokhara. And, uh, yeah, it was an interesting, we were just lucky point in history where no one had climbed it before. And you, uh, <coughs> you had some challenges. I mean, it, aside from the fact that you were climbing, it was nearly 8,000 metres uh, without oxygen on a new route. Um, you had very difficult climbing, very high, and you also had not the best weather conditions. Yes, that's somewhat out of naivety, I suppose. Um, this is, I think it's an interesting thread in Australian Himalayan mountaineering. We've gone there with an enormous quotient of naivety, <laughs> <laughs> given that we come from the flattest continent on the planet. <laughs> and so we didn't know what we are doing to a large extent. And that stood us in very good stead to, to, to a certain point. Um, because we had no tradition to live up to or to, um, to match or, or a certain style. Uh, I suppose a crude analogy is like uh, the introduction of the wine cask, <laughs> a brilliant invention of Australia, um, or wine bottles without corks. Yes. You know, we just did that out of ignorance. And, and Annapurna too was like that. Um. <laughs> the, um, Lincoln wrote a couple of interesting things on this. He, he said Annapurna too changed Greg's life. Until the Annapurna too expedition, Greg's method of climbing hinged on maintaining the balance between his ability to climb and his skill in predicting the play of natural forces. On Annapurna, he became trapped in a situation that he knew to be immensely dangerous, but where the only escape lay through the heart of the danger. He was forced to accept that he no longer had control of his fate, and afterwards he struggled with the implications of this renunciation of control. Just another quick one, he just said, long live mountaineers, don't trust their survival to luck, and the implications of us having done so without dying worried Greg because it affected his next move. Although he does not like the analogy, since his highs are far more considered 
the post-Annapurna Greg, was like a junkie after an almost fatal overdose. The high was good, but he now had to work out how he could equal this intensity with more control of the danger. Right. <laughs> uh, um, we got into the strife um, because we didn't know what we're doing and survived. Um, and after a after a um, bit of reflection, I thought there was something, perversely I thought there was something quite enticing about that. Rock climbing um, and most of the things that we do in our life is controlled, you know, we control our, our next move. Uh, the perverse enticement and attraction, I, I think, for the big mountains or wild places generally, are that those forces are way beyond you. You know, the natural forces are so much way beyond us. And that was very, very clearly evident on Annapurna too. This uh, is a bit of a telling shot. <laughs> this oh, yeah. is Greg after uh, Annapurna too coming off the mountain. You have a tendency when you're at altitude to uh, quickly burn the fat off your system and then you start working on the muscle when you're at high altitude, and so um, Greg was a skinny boy coming off of that one. I lost 14 kilos, yeah. yeah. Um, somewhat because on the way up, we got stuck in a snow cave below this top uh, steep rock climbing in a snowstorm at about seven and a half thousand metres, and and for a week I got and I had jardia, <laughs> and um, it was it was awful, and um, I lost a lot of body fluid there. Yeah. And uh, on the way down, uh, we got into a set of natural forces way beyond us. Way, way beyond us. For example, on the south side of the Annapurnas, on the south side of Annapurna 2, there's a subsidiary range called the um, Jugal Himma. Lamjung Himal, sorry, Lamjung Himal. That's steep at the base of which is an enormous rock wall of about 2,000 metres, vertical rock, that goes into the jungles of the south side of the Annapurnas, the steaming jungles. And from um, Lamjung Himal, there's, there's a skirt on the top of that big band of rock of ice cliff, 100, 150 metres high that's constantly moving down the valley and falling over this steep rock wall. And there's so much ice falling over that in the valley, in the jungle, in amongst the trees at the river level, there's a glacier at about 5,000 feet, formed by the debris falling off the side of Lamjung. Just the avalanche debris forms its own glacier a few thousand metres below, with crevasses and a neve and all the traditional things. It's those sort of forces we got messed up with. Which, getting messed up in the translation of that is that the glacier moved 
it came down when they were up above and it took out all of their fixed ropes and the entire route down the mountain beneath them. So they had to then, you then had to rework. Retrace it. Yeah. Retrace it. Um, you said that you thought that was a good foundation for what was coming up, which of course was Everest in 1984. Now, uh, <coughs> much has been uh, written about, much has been filmed about uh, the first Australian ascent of Everest. So we won't, um, we won't retrace old ground, but um, there it is. It's the, the North Face, the, let's see if we can get this. It's a, it's a really big mountain. <laughs> so it's why don't cool. you, you, it's big cool. you, you just show us, uh, show us where the route goes up there. That one? Yeah. It's kind of hard to pick it from this one. Isn't it? it goes up here. Oh, no, it goes up here. Yeah. Up here. Up here, across there, up there, round in there, up there, out there, up there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we uh, we were fortunate uh, on the mountain. We we got up we got up there early. Uh, when I say we we were one of the first uh, expeditions, there were only two expeditions on the north face uh, or on the north side uh, that year, so it was very different. Uh, and we had been up there for about three weeks or so when we heard that the American expedition, they were going to go do the North Ridge, which was they were going to go up a subsidiary glacier. And uh, we went down to, to meet them. And they had actually attempted this route the year before. Mm -hmm. um, and these are some, some of the great American climbers, Jim Wickwire, Phil Urschler, who was with these guys on K2. Um, and guys who I had actually grown up with in the, I actually grew up in the States, and uh, it was fantastic to go down and meet them. They were so jealous of these guys because they had the permit for, uh, for this route. Um, they were very doubtful that, that the, these guys would succeed. I mean, they didn't say Just that. Look at us. They, yeah. I mean, we came down, we looked. <laughs> We were quite a treat, you know, kind of coming out the mountain. We've been out there for nearly a month, and we came down, and in the distance, it looks like something out of Arabian Nights. They had all these fantastic tents with banners flying, and you know, truckloads of all these delicacies. They were sitting back on lounge chairs, and <laughs> we came out of our army tent, you know, like a couple of rodents, and ran down the mountain. Um, but they were very gracious and, and fantastic, and and um, and they did say when we were there, they said, look, if you guys pull this off, it'll be the, you know, the climb of the century. And, um, and, uh, and in essence, it has been, it has been, it's the only, only route that hasn't been repeated on, uh, on Everest. It's gone 30 years without a second ascent. What I found interesting on that trip was as a cameraman, it's, it's fun where you were invisible, except for when they need our gear. Um, but we're invisible. And so it was, I was able to watch the interplay of personalities. And, uh, and Greg, I was really just getting to know. And Greg kept to himself. You know, you didn't, uh, you sort of stayed quite quiet. Um, but you were the first guy out after the storm. And you, you had an intensity of, uh, of purpose that was very interesting. And, and quite telling, the, the bit here, this, see this little bit up in here, that's quite a steep rock band. 
and technically that probably was the most difficult. And Greg, um, Greg did climb that. It's uh, it will forever be known as Greg's Gully. <clears throat> These are the guys following up once the the ropes have been fixed. But Greg had uh, had climbed that, which is pretty impressive. Anyway, made it up to the summit um, late in the day, and uh, like just before sunset. And it was uh, Tim and Greg were on the summit. Andy Henderson, um, unfortunately, had left his, his glasses in a pack further down the mountain. And he had his glacier glasses on. And he knew as soon as the, as soon as the uh, sun went down, he'd be stuck because the glacier goggles were too dark. So he got to within, how, how close? He got to within 80 meters of the summit. And he had to turn around and start heading down because he didn't want to put these guys at risk, really. And so he he started down. And um, he had also one other problem, and that was that on the way up, his crampon had broken. He had to take his gloves off to fix his crampon. And he severely frostbite bit nine of his fingers. His hands were almost useless. So uh, this is a this is a chance for a little untold anecdote because Lincoln doesn't deal with it in, in white limbo. And in fact, nobody's really told the story of what happened getting from the summit down to the camp. Hmm. OK. Um, uh, climbing, it's kind of hard to describe what it's like extreme of altitude without oxygen from the comfort of our lounge chairs. Um, but it is like, it's like being on another planet. I have a really very clear tattooed memory of the summit under my eyelids and a memory of it going dark because we had climbed that day five or six steps at a time at limit of endurance. And then you stop for a couple of minutes to get over the oxygen debt. And then you start again. And so the day, and we climb without rope to go as fast as possible, five or six steps at a time. And so the day had disappeared into oblivion inside our heads. We just kept going up. And then uh, getting on top just before dark was, like I said about K2, for me, immediately, in a total state of exhaustion, the trigger goes off about getting down again. So I remember the view. There's much I don't remember. Um, but I do remember coming down because of the attention that it demands of you. And the, the sad truism about mountaineering generally is that so many people get killed coming down off big mountains because you're physically exhausted. You're, you can easily lose concentration. That's the thing. You, 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 know, you think, OK, well, I'll go down now. So we. Uh, came down off the summit and that was a lot of 
back climbing, so you're facing into the snow with your ice axes and down climbing, facing into the snow, until uh, through the rock band of the limestones of the yellow band, which is the magnificent top band of Everest. And I can, I can almost feel the wind of that night. It was black as the inside of a cow at first. And, and then the moon came up. And through the moon was blowing, I, I just remember seeing the moon through blowing spindrift. And initially we could start to climb facing out but gingerly ice axe, you know, on moderately steep ground. And Tim and I came across Andy quite soon, huddled waiting, or he'd actually started moving down. And Everest is befittingly the biggest mountain in the world. You know, the bulk of Everest is extraordinary. Those of you who know it, seen it, been on it, know that it's fitting as the biggest mountain in the world. It's so massive, so bulky in every way. And so the bit of it that we were on was enormous. A vast expanse of steepish snow slopes and rock gullies. And I, I don't really know where the energy came from for us there. There's gravity, you've got gravity on your side. Um, and but you're cut off from reality, in a sense, like you're moonwalking, I think, what it must be like. like. Almost like floating in space, it feels like. So there's a disconnectedness, but an acuity of thought, which it demands of you. And with that acuity, a an intense concentration. Every step requires intense concentration. And that's draining. And so we could at first follow the vagaries, the vague outline of our steps from where we come up. And then onto the broader slopes below the yellow band, which are broad snow slopes. It was just blowing spindrift and no sign of our footprints. And no sense of time. I have no concept at all of time in that. It had got dark about nine o'clock at night and we were just up there with the moon, really, and the spindrift and, and, and nothing else and lost our footprints. And the way we had come up was steep and circuitous and we didn't figure that we could find that again. And there, there were moments of, uh, there's moments of really, of quite desolate thought in, in the, you know, perversity of the situation, the desolation, the beauty of it at the same time. But I've probably romanticised that in the intervening time because it was just concentrating on the step, next step, figuring out where in the hell we were on the on that big expanse of the top of Everest and not really knowing. And kind of like Braille, we've got our way across 
to what turned out to be the very top of the Great Couloir, which is the enormous gully chute system which dominates the north face of Everest. We had climbed up the bottom part of that on the way up. And with the... I don't know how we got to that point, really. We just used our experience, I guess, used our intuition, gave over to intuition in a way, and found the top steep rock buttresses of the top of the Great Couloir. And we came to a dead end. Dead end of steep rock. Now, we didn't... We only had one torch. Um, and silly, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> but there's method in that. You're, we're trying to go as light as possible. We had one water bottle between us, I believe. And a few other bits and bobs, spare gloves and things like that. That's it. And, and light packs, Alpine sacks, Mac, beautiful Mac packs. And um, so it was just standing at the top of those of the Great Couloir and, and we had uh, one little bit of rope, about a 25 metre length of rope or 30 metre length of rope. And, <coughs> excuse me, I don't know now what happened. I can't remember how that evolved. But basically we ended up uh, using that bit of rope to abseil down into that black hole not knowing where it went, uh, using the stay out of the... Yeah, using one of those. And uh, that's all we had. So that's what these guys abseiled off of. So what they did... Is dig it into the snow. Tie it around, make a dead man, put snow on top, sit on the snow... Yeah. ..to hope that it will melt the snow long enough for it to freeze, long enough to hold the body weight. As you abseil down off a rock face into the dark above a 6,000 foot couloir. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was dark. <laughs> it was dark. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then it, it is an in, they are interesting moments in humanity <laughs> because, because of the jostling that goes on as to who goes first. <laughs> Now that's a bit like penguins. Yeah, yeah, it's like penguins. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's very gentlemanly on the surface, but you somehow I think it's body posturing, a bit of you know, shoelace tying, um, and and then someone goes first, oh. and uh, and obviously it worked. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. So. All right, we're going to have to watch, watch time here. I'm going to, um, we're going to zip ahead a little bit. Um, we really are, really are going to have to wind this up. I'll just run through a couple of uh, a key and quite important things. Um, in 1988, Greg went down and did the Bicentennial Antarctic Expedition. That was uh, down to Antarctica on a sailboat on what was the 
Dick Smith Explorer that became the Allen and Vi Thistlethwaite. Yeah. A small group of friends went down to the Admiralty Mountains in the Ross Sea. Um, with Margaret. With Margaret and climbed. I won't show the clip here, but we're just, they, they've made it up and here's these guys coming back off that mountain. It turned into be that, quite an amazing, uh, amazing adventure going into a, an area where, onto a peak that nobody had, had climbed before. Fantastic Mount Minto. Uh, and then came back and started a company called Aurora Expeditions, which uh, pioneered uh, a lot of a lot of ship-based Antarctic uh, adventure tourism in Antarctica, and then up in the Arctic, and then in the Amazon and the Galapagos and in Siberian Arctic, and uh, and provided a, a lot of adventure for you over the years. Uh, then you slipped into had another trip up an 8,000 meter peak. Manislu, and more recently, now that you're sort of, you know, relaxing a little bit more, uh, Greg went up into East Greenland uh, and has been on a couple of expeditions up into East Greenland uh, to climb the magnificent, absolutely stunning uh, peaks up around Scoresby Sund. Uh, and this one was a great one because uh, he went now with his son, Oliver, and they put up some fantastic new routes. And just to sort of wind this up, um, and it's kind of relevant to the Trailblazer expedition, and something that people have touched upon already, but people do say that, um, you know, that everything's been discovered, you know, adventure is, you know. Isn't it a pity being a young person nowadays because there's no, nothing left to explore? I used to get that when I was at Australian Geographic and it drove me crazy. What do you think about that? Well, Let's um, <laughs> <laughs> um, going, uh, Greenland is a, a wonderland of 2,000 metre rock walls like Yosemite but coming straight out of the ocean and the fjords with icebergs floating by. And there's a whole land, you know, of a scale like Australia of that yeah. um, around the, the edges. And, and it's not in our mind map. There's a whole world to discover there yet. And, and there's... Uh, and, the, and, the, and those things are turning up all over the world. Mm. And... Uh, Yes, okay, so <laughs> this is Oliver who was with Greg in Greenland. And so Ollie, this last year, I think sponsored by Australian Geographic, did a, um, did a, a, a trip where they were paragliding and they were camping. So they would take off in the morning, get some thermals, get some ridge, go all day, camp. This is what their plan was. They were going to start from Nice and fly to Austria. Yeah, yeah this blew me away. Um, insofar as uh, there is seemingly no end to our inventiveness for exploration and adventure. And, and Ollie's generation, he turned 30 in a few weeks, uh, shaping their explorations 
great explorations and adventures in their own way, which is really exciting stuff, you know. Um, and this was just a simple idea of he and a mate. They thought, well, we like to paraglide. We'll go to Nice on a Qantas flight and we'll walk up the hill behind there and we'll fly to Austria. <laughs> <laughs> which is what they did. So they had their pack, they had their, their paraglider and a bit of gear and they just slingshotted their way across the European Alps. And, you know, and so extraordinary stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, there's things happening now in, in rock climbing, for example. Uh, there was a rock climbing festival in the Blue Mountains in Katoomba last year or the year before. One of the key characters in that festival was a 13-year-old girl who's climbing grade 31 we say in rock climbing parlance. If, if those of you know rock climbing grades, it's ridiculous. You know, um, I grew up in the age of grade 21 being the lap of the gods. Here's a 13 year old girl doing grade 31. Extraordinary. And she, she, she's sharp, this kid. You know, she's so on the ball. Unbelievable stuff. I'll go back a, quickly because I remember when we were going to Tibet to go to Everest, we went through Beijing and we went to an acrobatic festival in Beijing, one of those wonderful physical displays that the Chinese are extraordinary with. And I remember a bare stage with four poles, like fireman poles, sticking up out of the stage. And these young Chinese gymnasts played on those poles and they were able to hold themselves out with their hand on a skinny slippery pole with their body parallel to it and do things up and down. Extraordinary strength and it was a shameful experience <laughs> as we were going off to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> <laughs> now those sorts of things are now coming into the world of rock climbing for example mm. and those things are happening in in, at every level of adventure. And we're getting now to the limits of what's physically perhaps possible in rock climbing in extremis, where young men and women are climbing so hard to such extreme that they're ripping the muscles off their bones. They have to be careful not to rip the muscles off their bones. That is, that's crazy. That's where they're pushing their mind. Now what they're yet to do is to combine their mental fortitude with that. I mean, of course, there's great mental fortitude in that. But a mountaineering expedition or a big expedition, a big exploration, is something that doesn't go for the length of a rock climb. It goes for three months. And that's the great joy of it. That's the angst and great joy of it. Three months of that intensity. It's pretty groovy stuff, if you like that sort of thing. And we're yet to get there. So, you know, it's, there's endless possibilities. Well, thank you, Greg. Look, thank you, everybody. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you.
This has been an Australian Museum podcast. I don't know about you both, but I could listen to you guys all night. And if it wasn't for the air conditioning here reenacting Antarctica for us, um, to put us right there with you, Greg, a lot of the way, uh, we would, we'd be settled in for the evening, I think. Uh, maybe around a campfire would be better in the future. Just an extraordinary journey that we've been on with you. Um, I bet you didn't ever set out intending to become our greatest mountaineers or among our greatest mountaineers, but your ability to tell that story aided by Howard, who's known you a very long time and who knows adventure and exploration intimately, uh, was a real thrill. And I just want to thank Chrissy and Australian Geographic for helping us go on that journey this evening and for all of you for coming along because it was a truly extraordinary experience. Thank you so much for sharing it with us all. Thank you.